Welcome to Archinex Sessions, episode 23. This week, we're going to discuss Morphosis's vertical proposal for the Swiss town of Vals and the continued evolution of Peter Zumthor's redesign of the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. For the latter half of the show, we'll also be joined by Brian Newman, Archinex's legal correspondent, to discuss the AIA's Code of Ethics and how the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, a controversial revision of which was just passed in Indiana, may impact practice. I'm Amelia. I am introducing the show this week because Paul is somewhere in northern Peru, so far out in the world that we actually cannot reach him by wireless internet. So he's taking a much-deserved family vacation and will join us on a future episode, either next week or the following. And I'm here with Donna and Ken. Donna, how's it going? Girl, uh, as you'll hear (laughs) later in the show, it's been a rough week around Indiana. But I will just, to put a positive spin on things, I'll say that the nice thing I've been doing this week is I finished up some drawings, some shop drawings I was doing for a project my husband is working on. And that was a huge relief to get those off my plate. And it was CADing. It was just doing CAD. And so I felt that I need to get back into some hand sketching lately. So I've given myself a Facebook sketch a day challenge. So I've been putting a sketch up on Facebook every day of something that I sketch by hand. So if your Facebook friends with me, you can uh, look at my Facebook and you'll see I've started some little sketches on the house we're doing up in in Traverse City, Michigan. And yeah, I'm just trying to get some hand sketching done. It's like meditation. It feels really good to hand sketch. That's it. So this is where we'll see the first hints of your fully built structure. That's so exciting. The first hints, yes. Yeah. You're going to archive it, unlike Todd and Billy, who we spoke to, who suddenly, who just don't have everything. That's so heartbreaking. I'm basically just archiving on uh, on Facebook at this point. But uh, Ken, you joined me a little and you put up an awesome sketch, very abstract, a couple days ago. Yeah. You know, that's one thing I don't do enough of is hand sketch. But when I do, I just, like Donna said, it's it's good practice and you find out, oh, well, I can sketch pretty well. So yeah, I'm glad Donna started that. Yeah. I'm excited to see those. Do you think we could share those in the show notes for people who aren't on the Facebook? Sure. On the Facebook, as we call it? The Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Ken, what was the project you were sketching? Nothing. That's what I like to do. I like to do uh, just a takeoff on, um, start to draw a few lines and then extrapolate from there and see where it goes. You know, unless I'm working on a particular project and never have anything really thought out. I've been using one of my apps on my iPad and I was starting to hand sketch on the paper app some possible pavilions for my backyard. So I may, I'm a thing I'm a, because of Donna, I'm going to go back to doing that. Nice. Again. Yeah. Nice. Good. So yeah, sketch a day challenge, everyone out there listening, send us some sketches. <laughs> yes. We'll post them in the comments. If you send us a sketch, a hand sketch. Yeah. So who's sponsoring that? Is that kind of like a, an AIA thing or just who's offering the challenge? I don't think there is one. I sort of stole it from, there was a photography challenge a while ago. I think though, there is a hashtag on Twitter that's sketches by architects. I think that's what the hashtag is. And I have put some stuff on there before. So, I mean, it's around in the social media ether to do sketches and, you know, hashtag them with certain things. But I just took it as something a day, fill in the blank a day challenge was my attitude. Nice. So, Ken, what, what else have are you, you up to? been up to? Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Same question. Perfect timing. Oh, just handling a few of my previous clients. One still, the, the butcher shop is still having a tough time getting started. So they've had some issues with their financers and potentially rebidding a project and trying to walk my clients through that minefield and the potentials, uh, the real potential pitfalls that exist when you do something like that. And they're still negotiating the lease with the uh, building owner. So that's uh, one thing I'm trying to you know, help them with. And then uh, I have another friend who is doing a winery, uh, a local urban, it's called Urban Forage Winery. And his process is he forages locally for uh, fruits and um, makes wine and mead from those collections. And he's doing a winery. And then second phase, 
probably next year is going to be a tap room above the winery. Cool. Nice. Yeah. And then the, the cool thing I was for myself that I was doing is uh, over the weekend is um, I have a subscription to Audible. And what I found is that uh, reading Audible or listening to Audible books is really difficult. I don't know if you've ever, any of you have ever listened to an audio book. Only when I drive long distances. It's really hard to remember what you've listened to. Yeah. That's why reading is so important that just listening to books is just not a great exercise. But I happen to be, and this is kind of going to be rolled into my endorsement this week. <laughs> I've been listening to Kim Gordon's book and she narrates it, which is one of the only reasons why I probably got the Audible book because Kim Gordon, formerly of Sonic Youth, wrote a book, a memoir called um, Girl in a Band. And it really, um, it's an amazing walk through her life, some history of music, some of her experiences, and some of the, you know, difficulties that she's struggled with for the past uh, three or four years with ending her 30-year marriage with uh, Thurston Moore. And I I like listening or reading books like that. Another book that I've read is a book called England's Dreaming. It's about punk rock scene from the Sex Pistols and before that and, and um, what the history was like in punk rock and how political dynamics in, in England were affecting punk music. And I find that one of the things I like about architecture is being able to go outside of my field of experience and tap into the things that I love and try to bring those things that I learn back into what I think about architecture. So this book and uh, Kim Gordon's book and some of these other books have really helped me understand what it is to be someone who's kind of a solitary figure and struggling with uh, their own voice and, and how to do that and think about architecture in a very different way. So that's kind of what I've been doing over the weekend. That's funny. I just today was thinking I should probably read more biographies because I not long ago read a biography of Cindy Lauper. It was uh, <laughs> it was on the dollar rack at the bookstore. But the best thing about the book was she just talked about how constantly through her career, she had to insist on doing things her way, that everyone was around her saying, no, 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 that'll never work. No, you need to do it this way. You need to make it simpler. You need to make it whatever. And she just always said, I have to stick to my guns and be true to myself. And that's what she did. So I think it's good to read about people struggling with those effects from other parties. Yeah, yeah. Amelia, what are you up to? I am actually recovering from a weekend spent, unfortunately not in northern Peru, I wish, a weekend spent out in the desert in north of Lancaster in Southern California. It's really just amazing the types of desert topographies that are out there. But this one particular place we were in was around Victorville for people who might actually know that area of California. And we went camping in this dry lake bed. So it's completely, completely dried out, completely flat, totally amazing landscape. And I was there for this local LA art organization put on a bunch of happenings and art performances over the weekend. And they invited a bunch of people to camp out there and kind of participate and also observe the art. So I want to make it super clear. This is not a burner thing. This is not a Burning Man scenario event. <laughs> it is just a weekend of people who thought the desert would be a good setting for their piece of art or their performance and made it happen out there and invited a bunch of people to participate and basically just turns into this wonderful camping party where everyone's just, you know, cooking food and hanging out and lighting traffic protector flares or whatever those things are called. There mm -hmm. was like one of these art pieces that had exclusively to do with the flares that you light when you're in like a traffic accident or something, mm -hmm. which fun fact, you can buy just as a person in bulk. <laughs> so if you ever want to like just light up a bunch of flares, you can go for it. And so there was like a spontaneous art happening related to that where people grabbed them and then ran out into the dark lake bed desert and made amazing things happen. So it was a really cool, really cool event. And it was hosted by this kind of dual LA art institutions 
One is called Machine Project, which is in the Echo Park neighborhood of Los Angeles. And the other is High Desert Test Sites, which is technically not LA, but the high desert of Southern California near Joshua Tree, where this artist, um, Andrea Zatel, has set up this kind of um, experimental living compound where she has all these different structures, where she does experiments with not only like living minimally in the extreme setting of a California desert, but also how her daily life is structured and uh, like everything from the clothes that she wears to how she cooks. And so it's an amazing, it's an amazing institution and they put on a great show. So Andrea Zatel is, if you're an architect, you have to know who Andrea Zatel is. She's one of the most important artists related to architecture in any way. She has a piece here at the IMA. It's a little sort of igloo-shaped shelter that floats in our lake on the grounds. And every summer, a different artist is invited to live in it for a couple of weeks or a month and do a residency in the lake. So yeah, she's awesome. And I have met her. She's amazing. I I love her work, everything about it. So Ken, you were about to say something about her, I think. No, I've I've heard the name. I'm 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 sure if I saw her work, I'd be familiar with it. Oh, she's amazing. Her, right. her company's called A to Z Industries, right? Mm-hmm. Andrea Zatel, A to Z. I yeah. believe so. And if you go out to her compound in the high desert, she has all of these kind of metal cylindrical pods that are peppering the like bouldered cascades in the in the desert out there where you can stay, like you can sleep there in the night. You would not want to live there by any means. It's, it's just a purely a protection for sleeping, but it's an amazing setup. And she's, she's done, she's really pushed what it can, you can be to have minimal living out in the desert. But um, speaking of other extreme landscapes, probably the opposite from the desert, we have a particular area, mountain town in the Alps of Switzerland, Vals, that has become, and I hope I'm saying that right, but that is becoming kind of the focal point of two very interesting projects at Duel with one another. This last week, we had the Morphosis proposal for this luxury tower in Vals, where the Swiss architect Peter Zumtor also has a project for a hotel centered around these thermal baths. And Morphosis's proposal is a giant, giant 381 meter tall luxury tower. It looks like a giant razor blade kind of cutting through the Alps. And um, perhaps predictably, this has raised a lot of eyebrows. (laughs) I don't know. What do you guys think of the design? It's raised eyebrows and voices, I'd say. A lot of raised voices around this. Ken, what do you think? Why don't you go first? Because I always talk too much. <laughs> um, I've been looking at the drawings and, you know, I think there was some question as to whether or not it was an April Fool's joke. But I, I, actually, I, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm not shattered by this premise. I mean, I like the idea of something so strikingly different. You know, it does, if you just spend your time focusing on the tower, it just looks completely out of place. But if you look at the the other renderings, and, and I'm not one to, you know, I'll be hitting this topic again over and over, is that renderings don't make architecture. But at least from the, the model and the scheme that I've seen, it seems, well, that the, the base of the project and probably where most of the people will be spending their time is well situated in the landscape and it seems to be rather appropriate. And I think what's interesting, it seems from the tower and not having seen any of the floor plans or anything, and I'm trying to, you know, catch up on if there's any anything in there because um, this project is not the only one that's under going to be was proposed is also a uh, today ando is designing a park for the site so there's you know they're trying to make this another weird town whether or not that's responsible or not I'm not sure but it seems like from the, the looking at the tower it's like there's maybe one or two units on every floor and it has these spectacular views and you know this is not for a home it's not going to solve any ethical problems. It's not going to solve any housing issues. It's certainly, most of us will never, ever get to Vols. And, and, and typically, probably the people who go to Vols are 
people who can afford to stay in a place like this. But as a piece of architecture, I'm not put off by it. As a piece of architecture, I actually think it's very lovely. I love the form of it, the overall sort of way that the base folds up and becomes this very narrow, skinny tower. And I'm sort of enamored of these, what are they calling them, super talls these days? (laughs) I think as a building, it's very beautiful. I have huge ethical problems with the notion of a place that rents out for 16,000 pounds a night. So that's like close to $20,000 a night, right? I I, I have major ethical issues with that. But I also just think I kind of, as a modernist, want to say, what's the point? Because yes, there's spectacular views up there, but it's in a mountain range. So why not just go up the mountain a little higher if you want to get that view, right? Part of my minimalist, functionalist, modernist attitude is why do you need to add something that, you know? Well, I think one of the other hilarious or just strange scenarios created by Morphosis by this particular proposal is its relationship to the other building existing there, which is Zumtor's spa hotel area, which is very much a, it plays deference to the mountain range. It's subtle. It's, you know, everyone there has to be completely dead silent when they visit. It's built into the landscape in a way that's like very unencumbering and um, and horizontal and just not th- imposing. And it just, it creates this really interesting kind of, the Guardian just called it a middle finger um, (laughs) kind of feeling (laughs) to having it be set up next to a building like that. The Morphosis Project completely changes the context. And I think if the, if the Zumtor Project wasn't pre-existing there, then in a way it might be a little bit more appropriate because it would be a more of a statement on this completely, or as of yet, untouched natural landscape. See, I'll take issue with that one. (laughs) Please do. I think it's a great counterpoint. I mean, in fact, if you just think about it that way, everything you described the Zumter building is this this thing isn't, right? So it's a great kind of counterpoint. And the other thing about it is that we're getting these really weird, like, renderings of the building. And I'd like to see it built just so I can, and like, oh, that's what it looks like from this vantage point, instead of looking at these renderings that never match up. But I actually like the ostentatiousness of the project because the other one is so quiet because the other one is so perfectly situated. Here is something that is none of those things. That is, to me, that as an idea, I mean, we talk about the ideas we'd love to do when we were in school. Here's a guy who's capable of doing these ideas in reality. And I'm like, you know, $20,000 a night? Yeah, I can't afford that, but tis, 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 Dada. <laughs> we live in a country, we live in a country where Richie Riches go to Sturgis and tow their stupid freaking Harleys on the backs of their <laughs> Airstreams and they're like they're climate-controlled trailers and they then they get off and they ride their Harleys around Sturgis. That's the only time they ever ride their Harleys. So these people that are going to go here, they're not walking up that freaking mountain. They pay $20,000 a night to look at that stupid mountain. They're not going to walk up it. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, it's healthy. It's good for you. Hey, man, $20,000 a night, I can buy health. (laughs) (laughs) And that is so true if you uh, think about how the future of biotechnology is going. I will agree, though, that when I look at the model, I think it's a model. It looks kind of like a doctored Photoshop rendering of a model. And, and I try to imagine, okay, this thing is super, super, super tall. If you were to go shorter with it, it really would not have that same bravada. That I think if you're going to build something that is in opposition to Zumtor, that is about a sort of new, utter commitment to a certain level of building, which I think that the spa is that kind of absolute, rigorous, relentless commitment to a a concept. If you're going to commit to something like that, then yeah, it needs to be this tall and thin. It does, because anything smaller would just look like you, you know, were just a puny 
human giving up. This at least looks like, okay, I can hold my own with the mountain. I'm still not sure it should be built, but... I mean, it, you could flip my argument and completely, instead of saying that the, the verticality of the Morphosis design is is not deferring to the mountains, I'd still, I, you could say that it's emulating them. It's trying to, you know, reach as high as the mountains are. And I just think what's particularly fun about discussing this project right now is not because it will or won't be built and not because of any particular design specifics necessarily, but just because we are in this strange moment where there's this little flip happening where you have the interesting opportunity to talk about an LA architect building in Switzerland and a Swiss architect building in Los Angeles. And <laughs> as we have Peter Zumtor um, going doing the redesign for the Los Angeles County Museum of Art. So what's interesting in the Zumtor redesign is that it is entirely this kind of drawn out calligraphic metaphor for Los Angeles. You have this, what has been called both a ink blot and like an ink ooze or an ooze of the tar pits, of the La Brea tar pits nearby. So it's this insistently horizontal oozing black thing that not only crosses Wilshire Boulevard, but is insistently horizontal and not so much about the landscape of LA as the urban system of LA. And I recently attended last week a discussion with the director of LACMA, Michael Govan, with um, the architecture critic for the Los Angeles Times, Christopher Hawthorne, who is hosting the series called the Third LA Lecture Series, which I've written about and so has Julia Ingalls for our site. And so you can get some more information about it. We'll link to it in the show notes. But it was just a really interesting conversation about what this design means for Los Angeles and what it means for a Swiss architect, particularly a Swiss architect who specializes in museums such as Umtor, to build his first U.S. building in Los Angeles and this type of thing. So what about that design? How do you guys feel about Zumtor's LACMA? Well, you know, here's another instance where I'm, I'm fond of trusting talent to do what's right. And I, Well said. Well said. That's my position. Whenever I go to a movie, if a movie is... If there are actors and directors that are paired up, like I'll always go see a Quentin Tarantino film. I trust them. I trust that when I go there, the experience I'm going to get is one that I already appreciate because I appreciate his skill and same with Scorsese and, and many others. So here's an architect who's done a lot of work that many of us haven't experienced and only experienced through books and through other people's eyes. And everything that I've seen thus far from previous projects is one where fantastic care is taken and a demonstration of a quality architect. And I think that on some level that this individual may regret coming here because it's going to be this, it seemingly becomes, and I'm hoping that's not the case, but typical as it is with Americans and their committees is that they are fond of designing horses and coming up with camels. So we're going to get an instance, if we get too much of this bullshit back and forth, we're going to get a really horrible camel when we wanted a horse and, you know, just let this guy do what he does. And and I I trust him. So that's kind of where I land on this. I trust him too. I do. I absolutely trust his talent. And as I said just a few minutes ago, his determination in getting things to be built the way that he wants them to be built and intends them to be built conceptually. My biggest fear with this, well, two things. One is I can't get a grip on it. I feel like Zumtor's work is so much about materiality, and I just can't get a grip on what the materiality here is. It's apparently black glass or maybe black metal. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. But I do trust his ability to finely craft beautiful architecture. What I am a little concerned about, though, is that one of my other big fans, Herzog and Demuron, you know, they were very much about materiality in their smaller scale works. And as they got bigger, uh, their, their work became less interesting to me, not only because it went away from materiality, but also because it I think it lost some of its 
rigor and uh, humane qualities. And I'm a little fearful of that happening here, just because this is such a big, a big project. So yeah, I'm optimistic, but um, certainly going to be watching with great interest. I totally agree, Donna. I'll just say straightforward that I love this design, even though there are so many things that are unclear or undecided. And that was something that Zumthor and Michael Galvin specifically mentioned in this event that Christopher Hawthorne hosted is that, you know, there are so many designs or there's so many elements that we'll have to just develop slowly through the course of the evolution of this entire process. Because, you know, it's a really long procedure that has been, frankly, gestating for a really long time. There was a previous OMA design that got canned. And so there's just all this, there's a lot of back history and they're taking it really slow because of it. But regarding specifically materiality, the whole point of the kind of big flat top is that according to Govan and, and Zumtor is that they're going to have it covered in solar panels. And so they're going to try to make it entirely energy neutral. And Govan even joked about like selling electricity back to California once we've, you know, tapped our resources. So I think that certain decisions like that are still being deferred, but will be made kind of in the later design stages. But at this point, the basic form is more or less set. One thing I do think is important to mention too, though, is just in discussing a major museum's redesign is that LACMA is right now a conglomeration of buildings. Um, a few Pereira, included in that conglomeration are a few Pereira buildings and a Renzo Piano building. And the Pereiras are going to be demolished. Like the Pereiras are not being remodeled or anything. They're going away. And if not so long ago, we had a discussion about what it means to demolish an entire museum to rebuild another one having to do with the folk art museum. Mm -hmm. And that obviously had a much shorter lifespan and had a lot more. And there are a lot of other outlining issues that had to do with the eventual demolition and, and rebuild by a MoMA. But in this case, I think it's really interesting how we haven't seen anyone come to the cause of these Pereira buildings as like needing savior, needing a savior. Because in L.A., it's kind of a joke. Like people don't really like Pereira. He's kind of the, the local architect that no one wanted. <laughs> So it's an interesting issue, and I'm certainly going to keep an eye on how the design develops and like what other things may become concrete. Who are the stakeholders at LACMA? Is this a museum owned by the city of, of uh, Los Angeles, or is it— It's a county museum. County museum. So that's why there's all of these, these chefs in this pot here cooking, right? Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if it was, you know, some big, you know, if it was, what's his name? Right. If it was just one private, in, or if it was, say, like the Broad might be a good example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Things move differently, <laughs> you could say. <laughs> well, I can tell you, it's going to be a bad situation then because you're going to have all these bureaucrats who get wring their hands of this and they're going to, you know, it's not a, you know, designing for a public entity is never a good situation because nobody really gives a whole lot of uh, shit about what architects or artists think and all they care about is getting elected. So... Like I can assure you this will be a bad building and he'll regret it. <laughs> we'll invite you out, Ken. I'll take you on a tour. That's my cynical take. <laughs> we'll take you we'll take you first to the tar pits nearby so you can be glad you're not a prehistoric mammal being trapped in the tar pits. Well, maybe we should change gears pretty drastically at this point, and we're going to devote the rest of our show to a discussion having to do with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And we're going <laughs> to, uh, yeah, totally. I know. Oh. It's a dire subject that we had to, uh, <laughs> we had to take at least some time to devote to. So stay tuned for the second half of our show about that. So one item all over the national news and not just architectural news this week has been in Indiana, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And not only because we have our own Donna Sink, who is in Indianapolis right now, but um, just to see the impact in architecture, this has been something that 
we have been following very closely and has been quite a controversial instance and that everyone is kind of yammering about. So I wanted to take some time in the podcast to kind of take stock of what's going on. And we later in the episode, we'll hear from Brian Newman, our Connect Sessions legal correspondent, to kind of give us some context of what the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is and what its revision in Indiana will mean for architecture. So Donna, maybe we could hear from you first about how are you feeling about all this right now? Oh, it's been a rough week. Everyone in Indiana, well, I can only speak for Indianapolis. Indianapolis is a fairly liberal city. We do have a Republican mayor, but he immediately came out strongly against the RIFRA Act when it was passed. And he's a moderate Republican. You know, he's he's a smart guy. He's been building lots of bike lanes. He's really interested in the downtown urban design. So, you know, he's a moderate. But all everyone in my community in Indianapolis is very liberal, and we are all appalled by this. And we're feeling very battered. You know, I understand the desire to boycott the state because, and I applaud the efforts to boycott the state, but at the same time, Sherman Alexie, the author of the that kid's book, The Amazing True Adventures of a Part-Time Indian or something like that, he has just said that he's canceling two trips to Indiana, one of which was at the Kurt Vonnegut Memorial Library, which is in Indianapolis. Kurt Vonnegut was an Indianapolis native. And when I think about that, it just seems like okay, wait a minute, Indianapolis culture is now suffering because of this state legislation. No one in the circles that I move in in Indianapolis is any fan of Mike Pence, our governor, or any fan of any of the very extremely, radically right-wing anti-gay legislators that pushed this act through, and yet we are now all living under it. It's been rough. It's been a very rough week. (laughs) (laughs) And Ken, I understand you reached out to AIA to see if they had any kind of official response or interpretation of this law? Yeah, I just posted a comment on their Facebook page yesterday, and then I got a comment back today from the AIA. It just basically says, hi, Ken, we are currently watching the issue and uh, continue our strong support for equality. As you mentioned, this is indicated by our position statements and our code of ethics. Uh, You're feeling like that's not strong enough, Ken? (laughs) (laughs) You know, this profession struggles to get the public to pay attention to us. We have a whole campaign. I look up. I look forward. I look in every direction. You know, nothing is going to draw more public attention to our industry. If the AI came out and made a statement today and said, and just restated it publicly, not go read a position paper, not go to their website. And if Robert Ivey just came out today and or got on some news show that we have the same commercial on on Sunday and said, we as an organization, as a body of professionals, abhor laws like this. It's against our principles. And if you're an architect and you believe in those things, you should join the AIA. If you are a consumer of architecture or looking to consume architecture, you should look for architects who are AIA. And then, you know, maybe there's this kind of this thing that we could, you know, dovetail together, bring awareness to our profession, bring awareness about our values, and, and talk about us in a very positive light, that we are an industry that is fully invested in equality and diversity. And, you know, to this kind of, you know, uh, mealy mouth statement to me is this kind of indicative of like the, we are currently watching the issue. I mean, I don't want you to watch the issue. Everybody else is watching the issue. More people are upset by this than the AIA is. And they represent 115,000 architects or 85,000 architects. They should say something. I will point out two things. One, the, and we'll get to this later when we talk to Brian, it does say very clearly in the 
Code of Ethics of the AIA, members shall not discriminate in their professional activities on the basis of race, religion, gender, national origin, age, disability, or sexual orientation. So the AIA Code of Ethics very clearly already says, no matter what a state law says, you are not allowed as an AIA member to discriminate based on sexual orientation. The other thing is, though, and this is where I'm going to give, I'm going to give the AIA a little bit of a pass, which I know I always do. A lot of people at the moment are holding back making any big comments about this because it is seriously such a volatile situation. I mean, there are, in Indiana, people are calling for it to be repealed, just flat out repeal it. They're calling for the governor to resign. They're calling for, like, it feels so volatile to me that it seems like tomorrow anything could happen. The next day, something major could happen, which would basically make any kind of, and I know you're going to get on me about this right now, Ken, any kind of position taken right now might have to change tomorrow. I know what you're going to get on me about is, yes, absolutely. I can stand up and say, I will not tolerate discrimination based on any of those things I just listed, period. I don't care what changes tomorrow. But I think as a person who writes in the, what, the public outreach office of the AIA, you have to be more careful about saying that in an email. Is that fair? Here's what I'll say. I agree that just like I don't expect my president to go popping off as much as I want him to, (laughs) as much as my emotion wants my president to react the way I would react, I appreciate his, his thoughtfulness around this issue. But there are many people who are putting their careers and jobs on the line by saying, I am not going to Indianapolis. We have states that are saying, we are not going to allow our employees to go to Minneapolis. We have businesses to say, we are not going to build in Minneapolis, or I'm sorry, Indianapolis, I keep saying Minneapolis. Minneapolis for some reason. We're not going to build in Indianapolis. We have in here in Minneapolis, we're starting to put pressure on our mayor to, I mean, she's made a statement already uh, around this, but she hasn't gone to the next level that some of the other politicians have. And it's easy for the AIA to get involved because it, now it's not just Indiana. Now we've got Arkansas considering right. this. Their state legislature passed this law, even though Asa Hutchins is, is requesting that the tweak happens before he signs the law. EIA can come out and just reiterate their position and make a public statement. I mean, there is no, there's no cost to the members. There's no cost to the AIA. If they come out and just say, not even refer to Indiana, they can refer to it obliquely. We understand that this is a really big issue right now in a few handful of states. Here is our position again. And if you want to be a part of our mission and be part of an organization, if you want to do business with members of our organization, this is how you can do that. And I think they're missing a big opportunity when they sit on the sidelines and they issue, they, they were watching statements. I mean, who is it? I mean, yeah, I think you are watching. But if you have this as part of your code of ethics, you have a responsibility to demonstrate some principled and some voice around and give flesh to what it means to be an architect and have these values be present and as part of your organizational values. And I think, again, the AIA just is so tepid because I think to some degree, there's a begrudging kind of, you know, you can put this in the code of ethics. I think it was, I won't say a large majority, but I said there's still a very old school mentality that exists at the AIA. And I think they're kind of fearful of organizations or members who are much more conservative. And I think they don't want to alienate them. And I keep saying this, I don't want to be part of an organization that's not afraid to take a principled stand on something this important if we're so afraid of alienating some members who are going to die soon or who are, you know, whose careers are ending. And I don't really care whether or not we piss off a handful of conservative architects. That's my emotional response. So I agree with Donna about being measured and even handed about this. But I think 
my emotions kind of take me away and I'm not as reserved. <laughs> so being here, and maybe part of that is this, I'm in Indianapolis and everyone around me, seriously, everyone around me is shell-shocked by this and is trying to think, okay, what are we going to do next? What are we going to do to fix this? The sense is that something has to change and we have to be active in making that change happen. So yeah, it's not about just making a statement and then nothing changes. It's very much about we are actively engaged in making this change happen. And I'll sort of put it to a um, a sort of Midwestern work ethic thing that, you know, we're with the people I know here in the Midwest, we are absolutely committed to working to make this better, to change this. But here's what I'll do for the AIA National. I will send them what we've got popping up all over the city right now are these little blue stickers, little round sticker that says open for service or open for business. And it's basically a symbol that says this business does not discriminate. So I will send a, an open for business sticker to AIA that they can put on their glass wall in DC on that building that faces the octagon. And that way they can say, that can be their way of publicly saying our code of ethics states that we are open to service everyone. Okay. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Sorry. I'm so tired out by this. It's just exhausting. Well, following all the coverage has been absolutely incredible because it's just been so dramatic and so quickly. And most of the Drama comes from the political posturing that we'll talk a little bit with uh, Brian about how in Indiana, this is not so much about religious freedom or the context seems to be not so much about making it safe again for people to show their religious beliefs as it is a political pandering by conservatives. So we'll see how that actually plays out. But why don't we check in with Brian and get him to give us a little bit of legal context around the law and have him join the discussion. Excellent. Bring him on. So we're here right now, Donna, Ken, and I with Brian Newman, who you may recall is Archonnect's legal correspondent. So we get to chat up with Brian and ask him what the implications and what the meanings are for any type of legal issue that may intersect with architecture. So Brian, thanks so much for joining us on this episode. Oh, it's my pleasure, Amelia. Thanks for having me back. So this time around, instead of having a particular architectural law that we have come into contact with that we want you to kind of elucidate us on, I wanted to kind of open up the discussion with a more recent item from the national and um, state news, particularly out of Indiana, home state of our wonderful co-host, Donna Sink having to do with the recent revision of a law, the religious, um, the, uh, relig oh my gosh, what is the name? <laughs> RFRA, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, yes. or RIFRA, as it's being called around here, RIFRA. Thank you. The RIFRAF of RIFRA, so the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. So Brian, can you tell us briefly just what that law is and what the revision in Indiana means? Sure, no problem. So the RIFRA, it's really um, what I would call political sleight of hand. Uh, by by conservative activists, conservative lawmakers, and uh, the Republican governor of Indiana, uh, Mike Pence. Essentially, what it says and, and what it means are, are, are a little bit uh, confusing. So, so let's start with what it says. What it says is essentially that a governmental entity, so the state of Indiana and municipalities in Indiana, cannot substantially burden a person's exercise of religion. So essentially, it says something like, the government cannot impair your ability to freely practice religion uh, unless, number one, it's furthering a what's called a compelling government interest, and number two, the government uses the least restrictive means possible. So on its face, it doesn't sound like something that might be discriminatory, because it simply says that uh, you know if you have a religion, you're allowed to practice that religion, and the government can't interfere with it. That, that's what it says. What it actually means is, is something quite different. Uh, what it essentially means, the term person, which is sort of a legal term of art, 
doesn't just refer to people uh, like you and I, but also refers to private corporations. Uh, so what it's essentially saying is that a private corporation can now have religious beliefs. And this is because of a recent Supreme Court precedent called the, uh, the Hobby Lobby case uh, about six or eight months ago, uh, which basically says that a private company can have religious beliefs. And a private company is now allowed to exercise its religious beliefs in a way that the state and local governments can't interfere with unless there's a compelling interest. So the question is, how does this come into play in terms of, of discrimination, which is what we've heard a lot about lately? The answer is, if a private company decides, well, you know, we don't want to provide uh, business or services to certain individuals, in particular uh, members of the LGBT community, the government it will, it will now be much more difficult for the government to impose sanctions or for private citizens to have redress against them uh, because of the new RFRA law, essentially saying that, you know, whereas whereas in the past it would be much more difficult for a private business to discriminate against LGBT individuals, it's now going to be much harder because of this law, which went into effect just last week, or was signed just last week, will go into effect in July. So that's that's sort of a broad overview of it. And there already was a federal law in place regarding these types of rights of religious practice. Is that true? Well, that's true. There's actually this was a law signed by President Clinton in 1993. The interesting little legal nuance here is that about uh, I think it was about 10 years after it was signed, the United States Supreme Court said, well, that law only applies to uh, essentially to the federal government. So as far as private businesses, as far as state and local governments, they have to pass they want to to adopt this law. They have to pass their own uh, their own ordinance, which would cover anything other than the federal government. And about, I believe it's about 23 states have actually passed these types of laws. The most recent uh, is Indiana, and it's drawing the most publicity, the most negative publicity, probably because of the recent Supreme Court case, which now says these types of laws apply to private companies. So, for example, just in the last few days, there was a, uh, a pizza restaurant in Indiana, which basically said, well, based on this new law, we're no longer going to cater gay weddings in Indiana because our religious beliefs, we believe, you know, two men should not be able to get married, two women should not be able to get married. That's what we think. So if you're going to have a wedding, we're not going to cater it. So this is something where they've actually directly relied on the new uh, language of the law. Can I go ahead and jump in here? Obviously, I'm very close to this, and I will say that the state of mind throughout Indianapolis, certainly right now, is just everyone's kind of in disbelief. It's very strange here. But, Brian, one of the, the main things that has been coming out about this is that what's very different about Indiana's law is that we do not have civil rights protection for LGBT citizens, that they are not considered a protected class. So other states' RIFRA laws cannot override civil rights. Therefore, you cannot discriminate against protected classes, even if it is a religious belief. But because Indiana does not have gay, lesbian, transgender people as a protected class, they have, essentially, they have no protection. They can be discriminated against. Does that sound reasonable to you? I mean, does that sound like a, a clear explanation yeah, of how Indiana's law is different? I think that's absolutely right. And that's why, you know, a law like that, were it to pass in California, which I don't think it ever would because the political climate here is different, but were it to pass, it would have less of an impact because there is protection under the state constitution and under state legislation for LGBT individuals that, that there is not in Indiana. Exactly. Donna, has there been a particular response within the architectural community? One of my good friends here, Scott Perkins with Black Line Architecture, pretty much immediately on Facebook posted the passage, I'll quote it, from Rule 1.401 of the AIA Code of Ethics, which says, members shall not discriminate in their professional activities on the basis of race, religion, gender, national origin, age, disability, or sexual orientation. So essentially any AIA members in Indiana are not allowed to use this law or any law to discriminate in delivery of their professional services. 
It's been a rough week. I had my AIA board meeting this morning and our executive director, who is a legislative activist, said, you know, it's been rough around the state house all week. There's a whole lot of backlash. A lot of people are angry. It remains to be seen how this will all play out. In terms of actual architects, you know, we try to lobby for certain things as we can, but we're certainly not leading the outcry against RIFRA because we are such a small voice and there are so many bigger voices than us who are calling for repeal, calling for change. But I think it has been passed around among AIA Indiana members on Twitter, on Facebook, in our websites that as an AIA member, our code of ethics does not allow us to use this law in the way that it maybe has been intended. So Brian, you seem to be suggesting that till Hobby Lobby decision came through, that these kinds of laws would not be possible. Is that wrong to infer that? Well, so, so here's, here's what Hobby Lobby did before. These types of laws have existed for you know, upwards of, I think, more than 20 years now since, uh, since the Federal RIFRA Act. What's different now is it was never assumed by the, by the folks who passed the original Federal RIFRA Act, nor was it assumed in the states, I believe, where, where the state RIFRA Acts were passed, that they applied to private businesses. Right. And, and so the Hobby Lobby case essentially said private business. So this was being a private architecture firm or in my case, a private law firm can itself have a, essentially a right to exercise a religious freedom or right to have religious beliefs or right to make decisions based on religious beliefs. I mean, these were always rights which were, in, you know, imbued in individuals, maybe in public and state forums, but not in private companies. And that's why the Hobby Lobby decision was so controversial. And that's why uh, these laws, while they would, well, it would always be um potentially discriminatory. It's become much more widespread uh, after Hobby Lobby because now a private business can actually take this law and say, well, you know, I would like to invoke the protection of the RIFRA law in Indiana. And since I'm a private business, you know, my business has a, a religious belief. And my belief is of my business is that we're not going to do business with lesbian and gay individuals. So two questions here to that. First being, if uh, the LBGTQ community was protected class in the state of Indiana. Can you talk about a public accommodations as it relates to this? Well, I think if they were a protected class, then they would have a, uh, a source of redress once they were discriminated against. So essentially, the, the way this plays out is, let's say a business discriminates against a, a gay or lesbian individual. The, the question is, you know, what can they do about it? Well, they can go to court, they can file a lawsuit. If they're a protected class under Indiana law or under the law of, of whatever state they're in, that would give them sort of a, a foot in the door to get into court and to try to get perhaps an injunction or to try to get monetary damages or try to get some redress. But if they're not a protected class, and the, the defendant in the case, the business, now has the protection of the RIFRA Act, then it makes it much more likely that their lawsuit fails to even get off the ground. That The judge says, well, you know, you may have been mistreated, but the law in our state doesn't allow you any redress for being mistreated. So the question is, you know, what rights do you have as, as, as a, someone who's been wronged to actually get into court? And that's, that's where this new statute really um, takes some of those rights away, potentially. Well, what is interesting, though, about the Hobby Lobby case, it really was narrowly talking about medical decisions for their employees. So it was around, we don't want to allow our employees, we don't want to pay for contraception or birth control for our employees. So is that to say now that if I walk into a Hobby Lobby in Indiana and I'm wearing a, um, an, uh, a pride shirt or something that um, they could actually ask me to leave their business? Potentially, yes. And this, this is part of the reason the decision was so criticized, because it was uh, the way it was written, although it did deal with the specific issue of contraception and providing that to the employees, the underlying legal principle, which, which you know, will, will sort of be fleshed out over the coming years through different courts and in different judges, the underlying legal principle is, is who has a right to claim uh, essentially an exercise of religious freedom. And, and before Hobby Lobby, it was only a person, not, not a company. So 
I think that the answer to your question is it's, it's unclear whether they could do that, but certainly something they could say, this is our interpretation of the law. And if it ever went to court, a judge would have to look at the Hobby Lobby decision and make a decision in terms of what, uh, how, how far to extend that decision. So just follow up real quick. So does the fact that the Supreme Court is seemingly going to be deciding gay marriage probably by uh, end May or somewhere, was it June or July, somewhere this summer? Yeah, June. Does that have any impact on any of this at all, do you think? Well, it may. I mean, it depends. And it's a great question. It depends on the, the ultimate scope of the Supreme Court's decision in terms of if the Supreme Court simply recognizes, you know, that there's a civil right uh, to marriage that gay and lesbian individuals have narrowly tailors it to that. It's unclear whether that bars discrimination in other areas. I mean, maybe that, you know, some some individuals look at this as well. You know, gay and lesbian people can get married, but that doesn't mean they're entitled to all civil rights. So it's, it's really um, sort of a, an open question in terms of how far to extend that protection. Obviously, myself and other people who are supporting the gay marriage efforts would like it to be a very broad decision in terms of uh, what rights are conferred by the, by the Supreme Court. And we believe, you know, it should be um, sort of a sweeping decision. But the Supreme Court has shown time and time again that on, on certain issues, they take incremental steps. You know, when we would like a really broad decision, we get a very narrowly tailored decision. So uh, the answer is wait and see. So just two things again. Oh, sorry, I'm so heated up about this. As you said, Brian, the Hobby Lobby decision, when it came out, when it was decided, people were angry and saying, you know, this is going to open the door to, I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, this is a very slippery slope. And sure enough, here we are in Indiana using, Hobby Lobby was based on privately held companies. Indiana now, this kind of law applies to to large corporations or to any business at all. So that door was open to crack with Hobby Lobby. And sure enough, here we are. But the other thing I want to say, I just have to point this out, Ken, if you walk into a Hobby Lobby as a customer in a gay pride shirt, yes, they can now probably tell you <laughs> that you can't be there, that they don't want to serve you. But the other thing is if you are employed by Hobby Lobby and they find out or you tell them that you are gay, in Indiana, they can fire you for that reason. That's legal in Indiana because we don't have LGBT as a protected class, which even that on its face, when you think about it, how 18th century is that? Not, not <laughs> even. Know? Not even 18th century. We can just go yeah. back to 1950s. I mean, you know, you just take replace gay and lesbian and put black in any of these questions. And we're back in late 1950s, early 1960s. So this is clearly, it seems like an end run around. All, I mean, by states, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but states could say, well, we're just the way around this loop or this loophole that we can figure out is to pass laws where they're aren't, or at least to have remove laws that protect gay and lesbian, uh, transgender and remove that protect. I mean, or could they, could they remove a protection once they've already had it? Does that seem illogical to me? Well, it's not usually done. Once, once a, a state confers a protection on a particular class, I can't think of any examples when they've subsequently taken it away. So could it be done? You never know what could happen, but it would be very unlikely. What I'm a little curious about is how this might affect the relationship between an architect and a client. Because, say, the client themselves doesn't invoke any of these potentially discriminating possibilities. So the architect has no reason to invoke the RIFRA in working for the client. But what about the intended audience that the client is building for? What implications does this law have for how that dynamic may change between those three invoked parties? I think it puts the architect in a challenging position, especially let's say the architect is commissioned to build a structure for a client whom the architect knows uh, is intending to discriminate against uh, lesbian and gay individuals. In that case, I would think that the rule, uh, I believe it's 1.401 of the AIA Code of Ethics, 
would really hopefully make the architect think twice before taking that commission. But, you know, I think this raises the broader question of, you know, who the architect is, is working for and, and how much of a duty they have to really look into, you know, the use to which the structures can be put once they build it. Or or is it, you know, they get a commission, they go ahead and build it, and what the person does with it is their business. I mean, I, I would say under a broader reading of the AIA Code of Ethics, certainly if, if the architect has actual knowledge that the client's going to use the uh, the plans or the structure to discriminate or for a discriminatory purpose, the architect should not accept that commission. That's definitely true, according to several Lines within the AIA Code of Ethics, it's important to remember that not all architects are AIA members. Um, so I went and did a little digging in the Indiana Code of Conduct, the state code of conduct for architects, which in many ways mirrors the AIA Code of Ethics for certain things, acting with reasonable care for public safety. You're not allowed to knowledgeably engage in anything that violates code or law either. But there is absolutely in the Indiana Code of Conduct for professional registered architects, there are no statements that are broadly addressing human rights or discrimination or environmental sustainable issues. I mean, the, the, the Code of Ethics actually does say something about the AIA Code of Ethics does say that we're supposed to promote sustainable design and development principles. So we are supposed to not inflict intentional damage on the earth, basically, through our work. But the state code of conduct says nothing to that effect. So there are some differences. I mean, I think I could very easily make an argument that any registered architect could not do work for a client that they know will disallow any class of people from their facility in some way that's discriminatory. But, uh, you know, that's just based on feelings more than actual law. Yeah, and from the architect's point of view, sometimes it's, it's hard to tell. I mean, I think, you know, in other words, if I'm an architect and I'm hired by, let's say, the Ku Klux Klan to build a structure, well, that's obvious. That's going to be used for <laughs> racism. On the other hand, if I'm hired by a company, let's say I've never even heard of the company, and I don't know that they intend to discriminate, and I, and I do a little a Google search and I don't find anything about them, it may not be something until after the fact, after all my work is done, that I realize, oh, this, these, these folks are a bunch of bigots. And I had no idea, and had I known that, I wouldn't yeah. have taken the job. So let me ask you this, Brian. I mean, why would a state take on a law? I mean... Look, the reason why it's called the closet is that many, many gay and lesbian people who have lived in that closet have done so for the express purpose of avoiding the kinds of discrimination we're talking about. And that also, in having that closet, it also meant that a lot of people who weren't gay and lesbian, who had affectations that were associated with gay and lesbian attitude or um, stereotypes, were discriminated against and beaten. And it's, it's it, so... Why would a state open itself up to these ridiculous lawsuits where somebody is somebody's been accused of being gay won't uh, be given service? Now that person has to go to court and prove that they're not gay, and prove that the discrimination is that was unfounded and it was um, illegal to begin with. Why would somebody? Why would the state do that and and have fill up the courts with these some just ridiculous lawsuits? Well, I think it's a great question. I think you're right. I mean, it creates a, really a, a number of legal problems. It's going to clog the courts with what you call ridiculous lawsuits, which I agree with. They, they really are ridiculous. And this is why, you know, these these types of laws come up from time to time in state legislatures. There was one that came up in Arizona pretty recently, which was, uh, I believe, vetoed by Governor Jan Brewer just a few months ago. Um, and, and so, you know, when... when it's not surprising that this issue would come up. What's a little more surprising is that it would pass in Indiana by such a wide margin. I believe it passed, you know, 40 to 10. It was signed almost immediately by the governor, Mike Pence. And the only explanation I can give, I mean, this really is um, sort of a political motivation. I know Mike Pence has been mentioned as someone who might run for president. You know, in terms of the ultra-right wing, 
uh, side of the conservative base. This is an issue they love. And, and, and as you know, I mean, the, these are the same folks who really hate gay marriage. They hate the fact that gay marriage is becoming something that's accepted in our country, that's spreading, you know, and, and will eventually spread to all 50 states. And they're thinking, you know, what's an end, end run way around this? And this is essentially, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a move on the chessboard on the conservative side in terms of how can we find a, a, a way to, uh, to hold our ground when the tide of public opinion is, is clearly in favor of gay marriage. You know, they have to resort to more sneaky and really, uh, you know, legally questionable maneuvers. And that's what I think this is. Well, one last question. What would be your advice to architects who are practicing in these states that have these laws in order to do enough due diligence about the clients that they're working for so that they don't somehow become party to a lawsuit when it's found out that Hey, I didn't know that the guy, like you said, I didn't know the owner was a bigot. I didn't know his intentions were to, you know, discriminate against gays and lesbians. And now they've built this building in a community that was relying on these jobs. And we've got this person whose values we don't agree with. And now I'm like, am I part? I mean, could you see a potential where I could be part of, of a, some, again, frivolous lawsuit? Well, there's always the potential you could be part of a frivolous lawsuit. This is, this is America, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I would never say there's no potential. What I would say the architect might do is, in the architect's engagement letter with the client, the architect might clearly spell out the fact that this is an architect who uh, abides by you know, Rule 1.401 of the AIA Code of Ethics, that this architect is not going to discriminate in any way against LGBT people or any other protected class, and, and that you know the client understands and agrees that this structure uh, or, or the plans or anything that the architect does is not being built uh, for that purpose. And then now, if the ar architect puts that in his engagement letter and the client signs it and the client turns out the client lied and later on the client decides that they are going to use it for discriminatory purpose, the architect can say reasonably, well, you know, I met this client, I did a reasonable amount of research, I put this in my contract, the client lied to me by signing this contract, initialing that particular clause, and it's not something I should be held accountable for. And I think that would be a very good defense in court if that ever came up against the architect. Brian, one more question about how the state and federal differences in this, in this law might apply for architecture. Say a client hires an architect who works in a state like Indiana, and the client themselves is from, say, California, for whatever reason, that is the ideal pair. How does a law like that get invoked and whether the federal government ever comes to play or who is the priority in this scenario? Oh, between the federal and the state government? Yeah. Well, it would be unlikely unless unless the particular architectural commission involves something to do with the federal government. In other words, uh, you know, a federal courthouse, for example, or other federal building, it's going to be the law of the state. And it's probably going to be the law of the state where the project is actually constructed, unless, you know, the architect puts something in their contract, which says, you know, if a dispute ever arises between us, you know, this contract will be governed by the laws of, for example, California. And that, that's something I talked about in earlier podcasts. You can actually include a venue clause in your contract as an architect or another person doing business. And you can say that this, this contract and my commission as an architect is governed entirely by California law. Even if it's being done in Indiana, that will typically still be enforceable, which is not to say, you know, that, that it couldn't be challenged, but at least it would give you, an, you know, another another legal leg to stand on, in addition to putting in a disclaimer that you're complying with uh, the AIA Code of Ethics. Well, this is something we're going to have to keep an eye on. Definitely in Indiana, we have Donna as the on-the-ground representative. She will keep <laughs> us updated. Yep. But Brian, I really want to thank you for coming in and talking with us about how this affects architecture, because I think that having a basic understanding of how these laws interact will be not only important as a citizen architect, but then someone who's actually working on a national and state scale. So thanks so much for taking the time. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. 
So that is our episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And as always, you can send us your questions or comments via Twitter, hashtag Sessions, or to us through email by connect at arconnect.com. And if you want to get the absolute freshest episode automatically downloaded, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you can, we would love it for you to rate the show and leave your comments. We really thrive on those and we love to hear what you guys think. We also really appreciate any comments you have to share. Oh, I have one more comment. And a def- Ooh. What is it? Go, Ken, share your comment. Oh, <laughs> Paul, if you want to stay in Peru, we've got it covered. And <laughs> we don't miss a beat when you're not here. I, Relax. Paul, I swear I did not put Ken up to that, but I can't disagree with him. We just hope you're having a good time. And uh, I hope you can't listen to this because I hope you're out of wireless and you are just having a great time. Yeah, what a luxury. So thanks, you guys, so much. Until next week, have a great day. Yep, you too. Thanks. See you next week. Bye. Bye-bye.